It is a blessing again to uh, open God's word. And if I could just pray once more for our time and ask the Lord's blessing upon it. Father, we thank you so much, God, for your great grace and your mercy, Lord, that we've sung about, that, God, you would treat unworthy sinners like us, Father, with infinite grace and love. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning, God, that your faithfulness is great. And, Lord, I pray that as we soak in the riches of what Christ has accomplished for us, Lord, that it would turn our hearts to trust in you, Lord, to know and to experience that you are greater than anything this world has to offer, Lord. And I pray that, God, especially for those this morning who have brought burdens and trials and troubles, Lord, with them, I pray, Father, that by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, through your word, God, that you would help us to look to Christ, Lord, to take on his yoke, Father, that we would be filled with a peace that the world cannot offer us at all. And so, God, we commit this time to you. May you be pleased and glorified in it. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. It's wonderful to see families here worshiping together. A lot of kids. Love that. Uh, Let me ask parents a a question. Um, And be honest. You can raise your hand sheepishly. But have you ever accidentally left one of your kids somewhere? Okay, so we've got some honest parents here. Okay. Um, it happened to us one time. We, our family went to dinner. We took two cars. And as we were leaving, uh, one of our daughters, Hannah, slipped into the restroom. And I thought Karna had her. She thought I had her. And we both left. A few minutes on the drive home, I received a call from the manager of the restaurant saying... <laughs> someone wants to speak to you and I was curious who would want to speak to me did we leave something Uh, and he put Hannah on the phone and she said "Uh, dad I think you forgot something and I said oh mom did that again I'm so sorry sweetie that your mother forgot you (laughs) something so basic something so obvious can be forgotten and I think in the Christian life one of the most basic fundamental truths that we can so easily forget is the one found in verses like Acts 14.22 that says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or James 1.2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James tells us in that verse, not if you encounter various trials, but what? When you encounter various trials. It's easy to forget this promise from God that the Christian life, although filled with great joy, great gladness, peace that passes understanding, will also be filled with many tribulations and various trials. That the sum of our Christian experience will be one wave of trial after another. And I've often wondered Lord, why do you do this? Why do you make the Christian life difficult at times? Lord, what is your purpose that you would sovereignly ordain trials, a constant wave of trials, both big and small, all throughout my earthly life? God knows that 
when life is good, when we're resting in the lazy boy of life, everything is comfortable, that there is a temptation and a tendency for us to forget God on this side of heaven. Moses warned the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 8.11, and said, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, and note what he says, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies... And what he's describing here is a very comfortable life, a life filled with blessing upon blessing upon blessing from the hand of God. And then in verse 14, he says, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One of the reasons why God allows trials into our lives on a continual basis is because these are tests of our faith. These are forks in the road for us to choose and to trust God, to know of his great love, to know what Christ has done, and to love him despite the circumstances that he has sovereignly ordained for us. We know that God always does what is the very best for us, Every circumstance, every situation in life. And what is the very best for us? What is the very best thing for our lives? It would be for us to live humble, dependent lives on God so that why? He would be our first love all the time. And so this is one of the reasons why the Lord allows trials and tests. To convince us in those moments when your heart is struggling, when you are facing the temptation to be anxious and fearful and worried in that moment, to be convinced that because we have God, we have everything. Whatever trial you're facing right now, my heart's desire and prayer for all of us this morning would be for each of us to believe no matter the circumstances that you're facing right now, and I don't know members personally in this congregation, but I imagine that there are those who are facing small trials, those who are facing large, big, devastating trials. But regardless of what you are facing, that we would have confidence that our God is greater, that God is greater, that our God is the only one who is trustworthy and reliable and dependable that our God is greater than any person, any circumstance, any burden. And to convince us, I want us to examine an episode in the life of King Hezekiah, King of Judah during the Old Testament monarchy. And if you have your Bibles, open to the book of 2 Kings 18. In 19, and we're going to look at this narrative passage and just want to point out three main truths. First of all, the trial. What was it that Hezekiah was facing? Number two, the test. What did this test in Hezekiah? And third, the trust. Look with me at the trial. The Assyrian Empire for nearly 300 years was the dominant political and military force in the ancient world. And if you've read history on the Assyrian Empire, this was a wicked pagan nation. They were known for terror and tyranny. They invented brutal weapons of war and torture techniques. Really the first nation in history to use psychological warfare. 
that people had heard of the atrocities and the torture techniques of the Assyrians and therefore they were deathly afraid of the Assyrian Empire. Carvings on Assyrian tablets documented the punishments they carried out. And in 722, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, took many captive back to Syria. And that took place in the middle of King Hezekiah's reign as king of the southern kingdom of Judah. King Hezekiah knew well enough that the Assyrians, being thirsty for conquest, would not be satisfied just to take the northern kingdom of Israel, that eventually Judah would be next. And that's exactly what they did. In 2 Kings 18.13, it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. The fortified cities were defensive cities. They were strategic military cities with strong defenses. And they typically guarded major highways, mountain passes. They served as garrisons for troops. And Hezekiah now hears that those defensive cities have now been overrun by the Assyrians. And he knew Jerusalem would be next to fall. And that's exactly what happened. The Assyrian army came and they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18, 17, it says, Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsari and Rabshekah from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Laying siege to a city during this time would have been to surround the city, to cut off the necessary supplies of food and water, to attempt to destroy the city's gates, or to build siege ramps to enter into the city. And if that didn't work, by surrounding the city, they would just wait. They would wait for the inhabitants of the city to die through thirst or starvation. And from a human standpoint, we would have to admit in reading this narrative that this situation looks utterly hopeless for Hezekiah and those in Jerusalem. You have the greatest military might known to man at the time. They've already conquered your fortified cities. And now the same army has surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They've cut off the supplies. It's an army that you cannot compete with at all. And I think sometimes trials do this to us. We look at the circumstances and all of a sudden we begin to believe that the situation looks hopeless. Sometimes our trials can put holes in our soul and out drains hope and joy and peace. Let me just ask you personally this morning, is there something going on in your life right now? That is tempting you to lose hope in God. Maybe it's a relational situation. Maybe it's someone in your life that you're struggling to deal with. Struggling to love. Struggling to forgive. Struggling to accept as Christ has accepted you. Maybe it's just a circumstantial problem. There's a situation at work or in your neighborhood In life, that's causing you to distress. And it's not going away. Perhaps it's a physical problem. You're having to deal with chronic pain every day you wake up. And the symptoms don't go away. 
How are you responding to those trials? Are those trials draining hope? Are they putting you in a position where you feel helpless? Where you feel hopeless? Where you're wondering, I don't know what to do. And understand, we we see the trial from a limited human perspective. And when we focus on the trial and we're just consumed with the trial and the hurtful circumstances, what happens? Soon we find our hearts filled with worry and despair. Hezekiah here is facing a massive trial. But look at point number two, the test. The test. King Sennacherib of Assyria sends an envoy to send a message to Hezekiah. And basically, it's an attempt to get him just to surrender. Don't put up a fight. 2 Kings 18, 19, it says, Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? Literally, the phrase is, What is this confidence that you trust? Note, he's asking Hezekiah, Hezekiah, I don't get you. We are the greatest army in the world. You're surrounded. Who are you trusting? That's the gist of the question. Where is this confidence coming from that you refuse to surrender to us? And I think that's what every trial and test in our lives exposes. It's revealing who or what we are trusting From colds to cancer, from car accidents to catastrophes, all trials are tests of our faith. James 1, 2, and and 3, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's a test of our faith. It's revealing to us who or what we are really trusting in. How do you know that? It's simple. Who or what do you turn to when faced with trials? Who or what do you lean upon when faced with trials? If you place your trust in people, if you turn to people, then guess what? People are your trust. If you turn to money, then money is your trust. If you turn to self, then self is your trust. If you turn to alcohol, drugs, food, shopping, those things are the source of your trust. But if you turn to God, guess what? God is your trust. Just as Rabshakeh asked Hezekiah, in whom are you trusting? Every trial raises the same question to us. In whom are you trusting? What are you trusting to get you through this difficulty? And the greater question is this, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Right now, can I place my full confidence and trust in God? Now, Rabshak is a very wily, cunning individual. He raises three arguments, which really are lies, propagated today by the enemy himself, lies that want to fool us to take our trust off of God. Note the first lie. It's found in the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 32, 11. 
He says, is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Here's the first lie. God is not trustworthy. That's what Rabshakeh is saying. He's saying you can't trust God. He won't deliver you. And that's exactly what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. And ever since, it's been Satan's strategy to get the human race to disbelieve God and his word that you can't trust God. No, don't, don't trust in the promises of God. He, he won't deliver you. Instead, we should say with the psalmist, Psalm 91, 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Here's the second lie, that God is powerless. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 13 and 14. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? Were the gods of the nations of the lands able at all to deliver their land from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations which my fathers utterly destroyed who could deliver his people out of my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? The envoy argues that no other nations were able to deliver or no other nations had defeated the Assyrians and therefore their gods were powerless to do anything against the Assyrians. And if that's the case with these other nations, the same is true with your God. Your God is powerless. Which is another lie of the enemy. The God is not powerful enough to help us in our struggles, that somehow God is limited in his ability, his sovereignty. He can't do the impossible. And yet Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Here's the third argument, which is probably the worst lie of all. And it's found back in 2 Kings eighteen twenty-five. The envoy says, have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. What's he saying? He's basically saying, line number three, God is no longer for you. God is actually against you. This is a common tactic in the ancient world. That when a conqueror came, his conquest was made possible. Why? Because the God of the vanquished nation had traded sides. And now the God was no longer with that nation. Now that God had joined the conqueror. And that's the strategy that he's employing here. The Assyrians are saying to Hezekiah and the people of Judah, the reason why we are here is because God has abandoned you. God is no longer for you. He is against you. And listen, beloved, when we as God's children believe that lie, it's virtually game over. That when we are no longer tethered to the love of God for us in Christ, we will find our situations hopeless. They won't make any sense. Apart from the fact that God is for you, he is not against you. And how often I found myself murmuring against God in the midst of my struggles and miseries. 
complaints like, God, if you really love me, then you would not allow this trial in my life. Or going to the other extreme, God, I know I deserve all of this because I have failed you so miserably. This is why one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Romans 8, which deals with suffering in the Christian life, combats that satanic lie. The lie that says, you know what? The reason why you're suffering is God has abandoned you. God's not for you. You've disappointed God and therefore this is why he's doing this to you. It's to get back at you for all your miserable failures against God. Romans 8 is bookended with Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, when we are in the midst of trials, the enemy is working overtime to get us to believe lies about God, which are totally false. And this is why... As Hezekiah faced this massive test from this trial, he's faced with a choice. Will he place his trust in God or will he place his trust in someone or something else? Let's look at point number three, the trust. The Assyrian envoy returns a second time. They have a letter with the same message that they've spoken The letter finds its way to Hezekiah and Hezekiah has this letter in hand and what does he do with this trial? The first thing he does is he surrenders to God. 2 Kings 19, 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And I love this. He went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. What what a beautiful picture of trust. Here is a letter, the very object that represents this trial filled with threat and torture and tyranny and inevitably death. And he immediately goes into the temple and he takes this letter and he just spreads it out before the Lord. What is he doing? Through this action of laying this letter before the Lord, he's taking his problem to God and he's handing over the problem to God. You see, trust in God turns to God and it surrenders the trial to God. He's basically saying to the Lord, God, here's my problem. And guess what, Lord? You're the only one who can fix this problem. Note what he didn't do. He didn't call on Egypt as he had done before to come and rescue the nation. He didn't throw money at the Assyrians. He didn't ignore the problem as if it would just magically disappear and go away. He didn't drown his problems with food and drink in the hopes to just avoid the pain. He takes the letter immediately enters into the presence of the Lord and he surrenders this trial over to God. Hezekiah realized 
that when it came to the Assyrian army surrounding the city of Jerusalem, that he was utterly helpless in this trial. He finally realized, can't count on the Egyptians, can't count on the gold and silver, can't buy our way out of this difficulty. God, we have no options. We have zero options. There's nothing we can do to avert the disaster that is imminent. Only you, your intervention, is what will save us. And beloved, I really think at the heart of faith that what Hezekiah does here is what it means to truly trust God. It's not to try to take control of the situation and to manage it and massage it so it turns into our favor. It's not to give it halfway to God and halfway to someone else. No, true faith comes to God with a desperation that senses an absolute inability to do anything about the circumstance. That's the heart of faith. It's a conscious decision on Hezekiah's part to come into the presence of God and to say, God, God, you must help us. God, if you don't help us, we are doomed. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. This is what faith in God does. This is the nature of trust in God. It admits our helplessness. It admits total dependence on God and it surrenders all to God. We're not there bartering with God saying, okay, God, if you do this, I'll do this. God, if you rescue me, then, you know, I'll go to India as a missionary. God, if X, Y, and Z. No, it just says, God, here it is. It's all yours. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in what? Weakness, not strength. Humble dependence and reliance upon God. What a beautiful, heartwarming picture of faith in God. I'm sure those of you who have experienced God's presence, the nearness of the very presence of Christ with you in the midst of your dark night of soul, where you feel so helpless, so hurt, your heart is broken and downcast, and yet you have tasted of the peace and the joy of God's presence and the hope that he alone offers. And you find those moments so ironic that although your heart is broken, there you are. Your soul is filled with such sweetness. This is what God is trying to teach me. This is what God is trying to teach you in every trial, whether big or small. It doesn't have to be cancer. It could be a cold. It doesn't have to be a major calamity. It could be the everyday struggle that you deal with as a child of God. 
He's trying to convince us that the pathway to his powerful presence of peace and joy is through our helplessness and our utter dependence on him. God is just trying to pry our fingers off of the trial and to allow him in his sovereign providence to take control. Note what else Hezekiah did. He, his supplication to God in verse 15, he prays. And there's several key aspects we see in his prayer. First of all, we see he praises God. Second Corinthians 19, 15. It says, he prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Note the focus of his praise. It's on the greatness of God. He is praying and in praying, he is reminding himself of who he is praying to. The sovereign creator of this universe. The great I am. The true and living God. The one who dwells in the heavens. The one who reigns over every living thing that he's created. The one who in six days with words spoke creation into existence. This is the God to whom he prays. And there's a second aspect of his prayer. He petitions God, verse 19. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us. Deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. He prays specifically, Lord, save us. Deliver us from the nation of Assyria. What's interesting about the word I pray can be translated as an emphatic, please, please. It's carrying a sense of urgency, of of pleading with God. It's begging God. It's coming to God, not casually saying, Lord, you know, if you could do this, it'd be nice. But if not, no worries. That's not the gist of that word. He's coming to God. And it's a wrestling match of his soul with God. He's begging, he's asking, he's pleading with God. Oh God, please help us. It pictures Jacob in Genesis 32 where he has that interesting wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, probably a Christophany. And as they're wrestling, he refuses to let go. And that's a a picture of Jacob wrestling with God in prayer. And what does he say? He says, I will not let you go. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Why is that, Jacob? Because Esau's coming tomorrow with all of his men. The very brother that I connived and stole his birthright and blessing. And I don't know what's going to happen. So Lord, you, you have to go with me. Great faith is a desperate faith. Note the ultimate reason for Hezekiah's petition, verse 19. And let's not miss this. He says, now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand. And note what he says at the end. He doesn't say, oh God, deliver us. If you could just help us out, it'd be great. He says, no, Lord, there's a reason why I'm asking you to deliver us. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know 
that you alone, O Lord, are God. The ultimate purpose of Hezekiah's petition, the ultimate reason why he prays for deliverance is so that God would be glorified. What goes in the heart, what goes on in the heart of someone who prays like this? The man, the woman, who goes to God in desperate situations and they not only pray, God, would you help us? Lord, we're begging you. Would you please intervene? Would you please save? Would you please sanctify? Would you please give us wisdom? Would you strengthen our hearts? Would you take away this trial? They not only pray for the immediacy of the circumstance, but they also pray this prayer, God, ultimately, this is what I ultimately desire, that you would be glorified. What goes on in the heart of someone like this? Hezekiah was a man who not only knew God, but he cherished God deeply. This prayer wasn't simply about survival. It wasn't just to get God to get him to do what he wants him to do. God, just get rid of the Assyrians. We'll be back to normal. No. One commentator, John Oswald, writes this. All too often, our well-being is the end. And God is only a means to that end. Here, Hezekiah demonstrates the opposite. God is the end. And deliverance is the means. Hezekiah was living for something far greater than just breathing his next breath or eating his next meal or having grandchildren that he could watch grow up. His ultimate purpose, passion in life was living for the pleasure, honor, and glory of God. And so when the Assyrian army came and blasphemed his God, he wasn't just thinking, oh, there's a threat. We're going to be overrun. No, his heart turned and said, how dare you blaspheme God? The true and living God. And beloved, when we have the glory of God as the ultimate aim in our praying, our comfort, our own comfort will get lost in our love for the glory of God. That what will matter most to us is not necessarily the removal of the trial, but Lord, glorify yourself in and through me so that when my brothers and sisters at church or when my unbelieving family and friends see your grace and your strength and your peace and your joy radiating out of my life, that they would give you glory. That's what was most important to Hezekiah. And beloved, through this narrative, we're reminded this is our goal as well. For God to be glorified, whether the trial is removed or whether it gets worse, that God would be glorified. When we know and love God like this, our prayers will ultimately be driven by the desire to see the one whom we love, honored, and adored and worshiped. We will, yes, pray specific petitions, 
for specific requests, but those prayers will be driven by the heart desire for God to be much of through our lives. We pray for the salvation of souls, not ultimately because we can't dread the thought of a loved one entering into a Christless eternity, but ultimately so that we would see the God of the universe glorified for his grace and for his love. We ask God for strength in our trials so that people will see what do you have? You are giving your God glory through your response. And all of that simply means that God, God is better. God himself is greater than life itself. That when you have God, you have everything. The psalmist in Psalm 73 at the end says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Well, the narrative ends with the prophet Isaiah coming to King Hezekiah and giving God's answer to his prayers. Verses 32 of 2 Kings 19, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Verse 35, Then it happened that night, that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. You know, when we have the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent, sovereign, all-loving, all-good, all-wise God as our Father. He's our Father. It would be utterly foolish not to trust him. But how simple it is that the scriptures point us to say, whatever it is that you're facing right now, whatever it is, will you trust the truth of the scriptures that God is greater? That he's greater, he's dependable, he is trustworthy. We can take all of our burdens, worries, and trials and lay them before him. We have a captive audience before the throne of grace that God is not reluctant. He's not miserly to give us grace and mercy. No, he generously gives of his grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And therefore, beloved, let's not run from God. Let's not try to take matters in our own hands. Let's do what Hezekiah did. Laying this before him. And saying, Lord, I need you. You're the only one in the universe who can deal with this problem. I trust you. Would you bow your heads? Our Father, we thank you so much for being such a faithful Father to us. We thank you, Lord, that your faithfulness is bound up in the security of what Christ has accomplished for us on that cross. 
Lord, that because he died, you are eternally for us. You're never against us. And therefore, God, we can trust you in any and every circumstance of life. May our hearts be drawn to you, Lord, to see your greatness, to experience your grace, and to live as humble, dependent children. We thank you again, Lord, for who you are, and just pray, God, for the Spirit to apply these truths to our lives this day, this week. In your name we pray, amen.